This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, May 5th, and I'm Tony Bernetti, the president and founder of Fed Protection, which is the leading insurance agency that provides professional liability insurance to federal employees. So this is a this is the second show of a two part series on professional liability insurance for federal employees. And if you missed the first show um, where we provided an in-depth overview of the liability insurance for feds um, that aired on April 18th. It's um, available for you um, on the Federal News Network. I call it a radio vault, but they've got all the um, podcasts there for you to go back and listen to for um, as long as as long as you want. So it's there. If you haven't heard it, I I would really um, encourage you to um, to go listen to it. Um, It's the first time in a long, long time of me hosting this show over the years that we've done a you know, a full hour on, on the liability insurance. Um, in this part, I am super thrilled to have two attorneys from uh, the show's sponsor, Shaw Bransford and, and Roth, um, who do the, who they do the bulk of the work under, you know, representing federal officials under, you know, Fed's program. Um, I have them here to talk about some real world examples, um, you know, and, you know, They've heard me say this before. They are the ones with with boots on the ground. Um, so the fact that I can pull them out of their their busy schedules and literally snatch them out of their offices here today to to talk to us about you know the cases that they have and give us some examples. You know, it's a it's a it's a huge benefit. So well, when I started the show, I talked about we are the leading provider of professional liability insurance for federal employees and. Part of that is because we're endorsed by all the leading federal employee associations. And the real big reason for that is the quality of legal services, you know, that that I get from from Shaw Branser and Roth. So that's why I'm super excited to have him here. So let me um, introduce uh, Chris Keevan, who's a partner at the firm, and Connor Dirks, who is also a partner at the firm. Good morning, guys. Thanks for thanks for being here. Good morning, Tony. Thanks for having Good us. Good morning. Let me just have you look. I know we all know that Fed Talk is brought to you by Shaw Bransford and Roth, and you know, you all have been the leaders in representing federal, you know, the federal workforce, you know, going back, you know, 1993. Let me just for our listeners who, you know, they're just tuning in for the first time, maybe just introduce your, you know, introduce yourselves, obviously, um, whatever you want to tell them about yourselves, and but more importantly, the practice here at Shaw Bransford. Sure. So, Tony, I've been with the firm since 2009. The, the firm was started 40 years ago. Um, and, you know, originally at its core, it, it was started uh, not long after the Civil Service Reform Act passed um, to represent and defend federal officials, federal managers subjected to investigations and disciplinary action. Uh, during those 40 years, we've evolved and we've grown and, and our practice has moved beyond that, but it's still mm-hmm. at, at the core. And, you know, as we kind of say inside the firm, it's kind of the bread and butter of, of what we do, um, you know, representing federal officials um, through all kinds of, um, you know, government investigations, disciplinary proceedings, civil litigations, uh, you know, anything that, you know, being a federal employee, all the various legal proceedings that one can find themselves in. So, uh, again, not the only thing we do, but a very, very big part of it. Yeah. So, and Connor, uh, on the, unlike Chris, I haven't been here 13 years, just uh, <laughs> just 10. Uh, so we both have a lot of longevity here. And, you know, I come to work every day and I don't want to reiterate everything Chris said, but we're here to, to help people keep their jobs. And yeah. so, uh, you know, that's what we show up to do uh, and help you navigate uh, you know, all the different processes. I mean, there's a million different federal investigative entities and we'll get into those, right. um, but help you navigate all those separate processes. 
No, and if I could just sort of add my two cents, because it's um, no secret that I used to work here at the law firm myself um, 100 years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and I know you guys all believe this, but I always thought this when I, I left ATF and came to the law firm in May of 2001, what happened in September was 9-11. And I really want to go back to the government. Um, but I really saw what I was doing here at the law firm. Um, and I still stay with at my liability liability insurance company too. You know, I reconciled that that was my public service. You know, helping these federal officials, you know, navigate um, a lot of these issues. And look, and that's one of the reasons you know I started Feds. You know, I was on this platform of education um, to really educate um, federal employees. Um, you know, about the liability insurance. You know, and, and it's kind of like what I want to use today for. You know, to the platform here today is. I've always felt like if I can have you know five minutes with any federal employee, they would convince them that they, they need the insurance. Because but a lot of it is like they need to be able to see some examples. Like there by the grace of God goes me, um, you know. And and that's kind of you know what I what I want to talk about today. Um, I'm not going to jump and redo a whole lot from the last show, but just big picture overview. We talked about you know the trifecta of legal risks that federal officials face. Um, it's just like civil liability, you know, they could be sued personally. They don't have absolute immunity for all those kinds of lawsuits. We're going to get into some examples with that. There is administrative and disciplinary matters, which for most federal employees is the real, real bang for their buck. Um, you know, that what the, what the policy provides and we're going to, you know, jump into all the myriad of investigations and things that can happen to them. And again, give us some examples. And then, you know, lastly, we'll talk about the third area, which is criminal, criminal investigations and proceedings, which nobody seems to want to, you know, talk about or whenever I, talk, whenever I'm out there and talking about it, their, their eyes glass over and I just say, listen, you know, I get it. You're dedicated civil servants. You didn't get up to come to work today to violate the criminal code, which is Title 18. But what I tell them is like, there's very little you can do wrong in the federal government, not also it would be a violation you know, of Title 18. Um, so there is that that exposure there. Uh, but maybe kind of to set the stage, um, you know, and, and I don't want to get into numbers or anything like that or sort of be obnoxious about things. But I, but I think part of what I'm so passionate about starting this company is that it's, it's an insurance policy that's relatively inexpensive and it provides a huge benefit. And the reason is it's because the cost of legal services, you know, quality legal services like what you all provide, it's just so cost prohibitive. Um, and I just wonder if I could just sort of um, maybe ask you, Chris, you know, again, not getting into numbers, but like what has been your experience when, you know, prospective clients, you know, start to appreciate that? And, you know, what's your response to that? Well, you know, it may sound like hyperbole, but, you know, when the power and the weight of the United States government is, is acting against you, it, takes a lot of legal work to to undo <laughs> something that the United States government has done or is wanting to, to do against you. And so it, it really is, um, you know, just the, the sticker shock that folks sometimes have when, you know, they don't have the insurance and they might call the law firm and they're, you know, have got drug into an OIG investigation or a congressional investigation, or even worse, they're, they're facing removal and you know, they have a family and a mortgage and all those things and their career and livelihoods on the line. And you see, you know, you know, five figure or, you know, if you're talking litigation, even six figures in legal fees, right. it's just unaffordable for, for most people. And right. so, you know, the, the value proposition of, of the insurance is really a no brainer. And to hear, you know, when you see particularly the people, you know, I'll ask them, well, do you have professional life? And they're like, what's that? And then when I explain it to them and they've, well, just it heard, and they've just heard those numbers, you, you just see them just I, sink. I used to use those words, you know, it'd break my heart and people would make fun of me, like, you know, who know me. Um, but it but it was, you know, that if they, you know, I used to always sit here and say I couldn't afford me. Right. I would just go get another job. But these people have invested, you know, all this time in their career and they have these specialized careers, law enforcement officers, wildland firefighters. We'll talk about later, you know, different things like that. They just don't um, have that luxury, you know, and then you add to the, you know, and then they think like, let me go out and get it now. Right. You can't get it. You, know? you can't, get, can't get your insurance after the National Weather Service names a hurricane. Right. Right. 
But the other thing I want to, before we break here, I think I want to emphasize what people don't appreciate is, look, the agency, there's an agency reimbursement. The federal government pays for one half of this insurance for law enforcement officers, managers, um, you know, and, and certain intelligence agency personnel. It's 100% reimbursable. And the reason I, you know, it's not such a cost thing to emphasize because the insurance is relatively inexpensive on its own, $290, $390. But this is a benefit that the government is giving you that you ought to be taken advantage of. You know, you wouldn't leave that 3% thrift savings plan match on the table either. So this is a benefit. This is something, you know, that the government um, wants you to have. So we're going to stop here for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. When we come back, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of those three coverage areas of a PLI policy. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are talking about professional exposures for federal employees, and I'm here with two attorneys from the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, Chris Keaton and Connor Dirks. So, guys, um, when we broke, we were we before we took our break, we were talking about just generally the, the cost of, of legal services. Um, but generally, I wonder if you can give me just a high level view of you know, with your practice, who's hiring you, you know, we mentioned law enforcement officers, you mentioned managers, uh, I threw out wildland firefighters, just kind of give us a high level, you know, overview of, you know, who your clients are. Yeah, Tony, all that and more, uh, you know, it's not just managers, it's managers and not managers. Uh, you know, it's law enforcement, it's FSIS veterinarians, you know, we have a regulatory state here in the United States of America. And so regulators who come into conflict with the regulated get allegations against them. FSIS veterinarians are one, but they're not the only. Uh, you have managers at, um, at law enforcement agencies, managers at financial institutions. You have employees who are just kind of doing their business at a normal day in the job and then find themselves um, a witness or a subject of an investigation that they don't see coming. Right. You have yeah. HR, you have people who- Lawyers, doctors, lawyers, scientists, yeah. uh, right. you know, people who interact with the public, people who don't interact with the public. I mean, it really runs the gamut of, you know, yeah. every agency, every employee. Um, yeah, FAA controllers. I mean, right. that's why I wanted you guys to give the examples. You're right. It's like lawyers, doctors, it's all the normal professionals, but then it's also, you know, all the jobs they do. And you think of park rangers, park <laughs> rangers, like you mentioned that my favorite is we talk about like, like the federal veterinarians are the regulated entities. You know, you talk about, they got complaints filed against yeah, them. SEC. Some uh, would know, say if, if people agencies. you're regulating aren't filing complaints against you, you're not doing your job, <laughs> right? You know, that's and right. That's, and, you know, and, and that's what they would say. And and just one more thing. I mean, if you're in uh, HR, you have any involvement in hiring and firing. Um, that that is one of the big um, inroads to to you know people who hire us is people involved in personnel actions generally. Um, well, and that's something that's been something that's been new the last decade or so that HR professionals have been vulnerable um, just for the advice they're giving, right? If I'm a manager and I'm taking a hiring actions and I'm getting advice from you, you know, you know the, the agency lawyer or what have you, I'm not an expert on whistleblower retaliation and things like that, but I had, I rely on your advice. You know, that's something that OSC, some of these other entities may look at, which which I know we'll talk about. We'll talk about later. Um, so let's just jump in, Chris. Let's jump into the first major coverage area, which is you know something everybody always worries about, which is their pocketbook which is what they think about insurance. Um, and, you know, these are called personal capacity lawsuits, you know, or Bivens actions or constitutional torts. And what a lot of federal employees are surprised to learn is that they don't have absolute immunity for these personal capacity lawsuits like they do, you know, for lawsuits under the Federal Tort Claims Act. Um, and more importantly, Department of Justice representation is, is not mandatory and it's not, right, automatic. That's correct. Right. So, you know, maybe if you can just sort of, I guess, walk us through the landscape a little bit 
um, Chris, what happens if you're a you know a federal official? And a lot of these are law enforcement officers that are being sued. Yeah, law enforcement or um, Bureau of Prisons, uh, you know, any place that really where you're interacting with the public um, are generally where these lawsuits originate. But when a federal official is, is sued in their individual capacity, they you are allowed to request Department of Justice representation. Um, it is not guaranteed. It is not promised. And the Department of Justice, you know, I've never gotten a full peek behind the curtain to see how the sausage is made, uh, but they do their evaluation and their assessment. And, and the ultimate question is, is whether or not it's in the interest of, of the United States to provide you legal defense. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> Again, if I knew the recipe, uh, I, I would. I, I would say it means, I would say it means whatever they wanted to be. Right. And so, so yeah, it you go through that process, and sometimes if they decide it's in the interest of the United States, you will get a Department of Justice lawyer or an AUSA from the local U.S. Attorney's office. Or sometimes, if there's a conflict of interest, the government will actually hire an outside law firm. Uh, you know, I've been hired and our law firm's been hired in that capacity by the Department of Justice. Or, you know, the worst case scenario is when they determine that it's not in the interest and then you're on your own. Right. And, you know, the, the most common action we see is what's called Bivens actions. Um, now, while Bivens has been whittled down a lot by the Supreme Court uh, in the last 15 years, it hasn't been overruled. It's still good law. And, you know, plaintiffs are still going to file Bivens suits. And so... The plus side of that law being whittled down is while the chances of you getting a huge monetary damages award against you is low, you're still brought into a lawsuit. And it's a lot of legal work when you're in federal district court mm -hmm. to provide legal defense and to get yourself removed from that lawsuit. So it's yeah. And it's, you know, I, you, you, something I've certainly seen, you know, where my practice has grown in the last five years you know, that we've, I've done quite a few cases, you know, summer 2020, all the George Floyd protests, riots, mm -hmm. depending on your perspective, you know, there was a lot of interaction between protesters and law enforcement that has spurred a whole lot of uh, civil lawsuits. And, you know, and, and I've been doing a lot of work on that. So it, it can happen. It absolutely. Have, can you, have, have you seen, since you mentioned George Floyd, um, such, you know, the tragedy there, um, have you seen any shift? So what I, We'll tell people normally about, you know, in the interest of the United States, when DOJ declines to rep, you know, the, the base point, I say, look, if you're being investigated for some sort of misconduct for the very same reason you're being sued or you've been disciplined for that underlying conduct for the very same reason you're being sued. I mean, surely you can see that the government's not going to want to be on both sides of that. Um, you know, that's one side of it. The other side of it, it you know, and Chris has heard me <laughs> we speak on this a lot together. It is a, you know, it is an institutional interest in the United States. Like we want to cover you, even if, you know, something's happened, you know, you know, not necessarily, you made a mistake. You know, we still want you to cover because look, we want, we don't want law enforcement officers. We need them to be trained and act in these situations, not stop and say, gee, if I do something here, is DOJ going to rep me? You know, yeah, or is not? my employer going to have my back? Yeah, yeah. But have you seen any shift, you know, since the George Floyd situation where DOJ, you know, is, you know, maybe denying rep, you know, on things where they would have repped previously? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have a, a full enough picture to really, you know, opine too much on that. Uh -huh. But yeah, I mean, historically, you know, I would see cases, it was kind of unsurprising that the individual wasn't covered. Because to your point, they had been... Um, fired for misconduct. The government's not going to fire you for your conduct on one hand and then defend you in a civil suit for the very same conduct on the other. Like that kind of made sense to me. But in, yeah, in some of these more recent cases, you know, it does beg the question of, you know, are these policy decisions from the administration based on something that happened under the prior administration? Or, you know, again, I, I don't have a full peek behind the curtain, mm -hmm. but I will say, you know, it, there have been some cases that I've taken in the last few years where it, it wasn't entirely clear to me yeah. why the government, the Department of Justice, denied I, I, representation. I would echo that. And but to DOJ's credit, they had a conversation with me about it where they denied it. We are seeing I mean, in, in the insurance world, we are seeing, we think, an uptick on denial of rep situations. And, and who knows, you know, ultimately, 
um, you know, you know why that is. Um, the other piece of the the sort of policy I just want to mention, since we're, we're talking about it, it's a personal capacity lawsuit, so it's still your pocketbook, no matter who's representing you. So if if, if they lose, if DOJ is repping you, you know, and they lose, you know, and and you're they decline to indemnify you, you know, it's still your personal liability. And so what's the test for indemnification? It's the same two-part test, right? <laughs> scope of employment. And then is it in the interest of the United States to, to indemnify you? And that's where, you know, the insurance kicks in. It's traditional, um, you know, you know, in, in indemnity, you know, you know, kind of, kind of insurance, you know, and it's, and it's you know, and it's the core reason, you know, why, you know, the insurance is, you know, is there. Um, so that's civil lawsuits. Um, I want to shift now to the second coverage area. And I, at the top of the hour, always want to say that at the top of the hour, <laughs> um, I talked about that that's the most bang for their buck for a lot of federal employees are the, you know, administrative and disciplinary matters. So Connor, let me ask you maybe to kind of like, in, you know, when I say that, you know, and kind of explaining it to our listeners, you know, you know, what does that encompass? Yeah, so there's there's a flow to it, right? It starts typically with an investigation. Uh, whether that investigation, where that investigation comes from, it might differ case to case. Uh, there's OIG, it's the Office of Inspector General at any given agency that has oversight, serves as a watchdog for you know, waste, fraud, and abuse, although that, that jurisdiction is a little bit more broad than that. Uh, you have the Office of Special Counsel that investigates prohibited personnel practices, hiring and firing decisions. Uh, and then you just you, you have your garden variety um, internal investigations, whether it's about harassment or uh, whether it's about a specific conduct that you, you, you may have engaged in or that the government thinks you engaged in. A lot of times it's not true. Uh, so you have all these different investigative entities that kind of kick off the administrative disciplinary process. But the core of it is when the government has decided what you did, what they think you did, right. uh, they'll they'll propose a disciplinary action against you. Right. Um, and then where we come in and, and we, you know, of course, help people prepare for investigations, but uh, we also defend them against when they're they're um, proposed a disciplinary action. So we step in and we help them get a written and oral reply together. Uh, and those are those are exhaustive processes. So let me, it, it, we're going to talk about that in a little bit more in more detail, but let me like just take a step back because the ones you, you threw out. So, you know, OIG, I want to just maybe comment on some of these that are a little bit more um, serious, I would call them. Sure. But but for our listeners, it's it's any OIG, OSC, EEO complaint Congress. against you, congressional investigation, any investigation that can result in a personnel action against you, you're going to be covered what I call cradle to grave from the start of the investigation to the conclusion of it. Um, you have a, a, a lawyer you know, on it from, from the start. We'll talk about in the next segment the, you know, the, benefit, um, the benefit of that. You know, if you're a professional medical, your doctor, lawyer covers you know, investigations by your professional boards and, and things like that. But maybe if I can just have you guys comment a little bit on, you know, an OIG investigation. Yeah. Like, what is it, you know, because OIGs typically will knock on the employee's door and say, hey, you know, I'm here to ask you a few mm -hmm. questions. And, um, you know, what is the advice that you're giving in that situation? Yeah, it's not an entity that most people have any reason to interact with. So when you wake up to an email in your inbox uh, from the IG asking to meet that same day, or uh, like Tony said, a, a knock on your office door with a, someone you've never met before, kind of leaning in. And, and not just somebody, but somebody with a badge and a gun. You know, these are special agents, yes. criminal investigators, which in and of itself, I think, sends most people's heart racing a little bit. Right. The first question you have is, oh, what did I do wrong? Right. And it might be nothing. Uh, so, you know, the, it's a complicated process. And one of the big early issues that we help people navigate is, do you even have to go to the interview? Do right. you have to testify? Right. Uh, and you know, we, it, it sounds strange, we help people get forced to testify. Uh, and, and one of the big reasons there is that uh, if it's voluntary, it means there's still potential criminal liability. Uh, a compelled interview is a strange thing. It's almost unique to federal employment where the government forces you to testify in an investigation and 
what you talk about um, there uh, is immune from prosecution uh, on those subjects. So that that is, to me, kind of the core early service that we provide in these investigations is helping people navigate this incredibly precarious position. Well, it's, it's, you know, people don't know that they have that choice, right? It's like, you know, it's voluntary that they're there to tell me I have to cooperate. And OIGs sometimes, you know, but in my opinion, I can say this, you guys don't have to play a little fast, you know, with, with the rules, um, you know, is it voluntary, is it compelled, you know, you've got to cooperate. And it's funny, I always say what sounds worse is better, right? Yes. What's, you know, yeah. compelled, which is what, you know, sounds worse is. Yeah, it's a fascinating like, kind of overlap of, you know, an individual's Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination versus a federal employee's obligation right. to follow instructions and do right. what they're told. Right. And, you know, when you're told, you're ordered, you must answer our questions or you'll be fired. Well, you know, that infringes on your Fifth Amendment right. And therefore, it can't be it's immune. Right. You know, anything you say under those circumstances is immune from, you know, being used in a criminal prosecution. So to your point, it sounds scary to the uninformed. You must answer our questions or you'll be fired. But that's a good place well, to be. <laughs> I think the voluntary piece of it, I always say, look, I mean, you don't surrender all your constitutional rights simply because you are a public you know, or federal employee. We have to stop here for our second break. We'll continue our discussion after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Shaw, Brentford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Brentford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbrentsford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just entering the second half of the show, and we're talking about the benefits of having a professional liability insurance and some specific sort of examples. Um, and my guests are Chris Keeven and Connor Dirks, two uh, attorneys and partners from the Washington, D.C.-based law firm Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Um, when we broke, we were kind of talking about Office of Inspector General investigations. I wanted to give our listeners just a feel um for some of these more common ones um and you had mentioned osc connor you know i would like for you to kind of just break that down a little bit and explain who the office of special counsel is and and you know why are those investigations something you know federal officials should be concerned about sure uh osc is the, the guardian of the merit systems principles oh my. uh the <laughs> uh investigator and prosecutor of prohibited personnel practices uh, they essentially, they have jurisdiction to investigate um, a number of commonly known and, and more obscure uh, personnel practices, whistleblower retaliation probably being the most famous thing that they investigate, but also, uh, you know, granting a preference in, in hiring um, and, and some other hiring related uh, issues as well. So they, uh, they, they are a really unique agency. Uh, they're staffed with lawyers. They uh, have oversight over the entire federal government. And essentially, if they get a complaint, uh, they may or may not swoop in and conduct an investigation. Uh, but when they conduct an investigation, it's a very serious matter. Uh, and they let lawyers in, right? Of course, they yeah. will let your lawyers in. Uh, they, unlike some of the other uh, investigators out there, they are lawyers. They will let lawyers in but they are skilled questioners. Uh, their investigations are often lengthy. Uh, and the, the hardest part about OSC investigations is that um, without a lawyer there, it's really hard to know what's going on uh, because right. they're not a transparent uh, in, in where they are in their investigation or what they're finding even. And it often can involve a case where, like, let's say you're a manager, you mentioned whistleblower retaliation, you took a disciplinary action against an employee 
you don't do that, you know, out on an island by yourself. You get no. legal advice from the agency lawyers. You get advice from employee labor relations branch. You have your management buy-in. The agency is a cohesive unit when they take these actions. But, you know, OSC can sort of take an action independent. You know, even if the agency says this was legal, this was good, OSC can come in and say no. And often the, the manager now feels that they're out there on an island by themselves, right? That's right. I mean, OSC can uh, can even uh, prosecute a disciplinary action against a manager themselves without buy-in at all from the employing agency. Uh, you know, they're, that's not their first choice. Their first choice is to try to coax an agency into disciplining you um, if they found against you. But they can do it all by themselves. And in that scenario, uh, it can be really tough um, when the the experts in you know, federal personnel uh, and prohibited personnel practices are, are accusing you of something like that. You really need to uh, you know, have your eye on the ball. So, And one thing I would add is OSC statutory authority um, entitles them to basically any agency record they want, including any record that a, an, another agency might deem privileged. Um, you cannot, agencies cannot refuse to turn over attorney-client privilege or deliberative process privilege and information to OSC. By statute, OSC gets that. Um, so by the time, if you're the subject, by the time you're called into an interview, OSC has already obtained and reviewed a voluminous record of documents. They've seen all the internal emails. And because they are lawyers, these interviews are really more like depositions um, than a, an interview. And so as Connor said, like, they're often lengthy. I mean, you're usually, you know, these interviews are three, four, five, eight hours long. And so it's, you know, they're, they're very thorough and it is, you it can is, get called back. And if you don't know the intricacies of the prohibited person, uh, personnel practice statute, it, it can be a very, very uncomfortable and unpleasant interview. And often they're involved, you know, underlying facts that have occurred you know, a long time ago, years, years ago. So it, it, it requires, you know, some recollection, as they say. And, <laughs> and OSC can come in with, you know, a laser or, or right. a shotgun, right? Mm -hmm. They could try to focus on one manager or they could be investigating the manager, the HR, uh, the legal counsel. Uh, really, no one's immune to that. Uh, so it, it, it can it can vary in the approach. Yeah. Given all that, the bottom line is, it's, and we'll talk on this later, when OSC shows up, you 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 don't want to just show up and wing it. You you need to spend a lot of time getting prepared before you go into that interview. So let me let me just quickly ask you about um, another kind of investigation: EEO complaints. Because um, if people think of this in the insurance world and employment practices, liability stuff. Um, EEO complaints, as we know or may not know, are always cases against. Unlike these personal capacity lawsuits, are lawsuits against the government. It's against the the head of the agency. So you, the employee, you know, or what's called the responsible management official can never be held liable. But why would you ever need legal representation for an EEO complaint then? Well, uh, because if the agency loses or settles in one of those suits uh, and your testimony is part of the reason they lost, uh, the eye is going to turn to you. Um, and there's a, it could be a finding from a judge saying that you discriminated against someone or retaliated against someone. And then the agency is going to look uh, to you to be disciplined, to take that corrective action. Uh, and those can be serious disciplinary actions. And if just to piggyback on that, if the EEOC judge makes a finding of discrimination or reprisal, they will generally include a recommendation that the agency take corrective action against the responsible management official. And so any agency who receives a finding of discrimination from the EEOC with a recommendation from the EEOC to penalize someone, pretty obvious, you know, what, what the agency is going to do with that. Right. And but, under such laws, the No Fear Act, they've got to report how many findings of discrimination and, and the corollary disciplinary action taken against a manager it doesn't take, you know, a rocket scientist to see they got but a problem if they're doing five and zero. <laughs> it's, you know, it's an important, you know, just the, the, the process of when a, a federal employee files a formal EEO complaint is the agency must investigate. Right. They're required. And that investigation includes you getting interviewed or yeah. responding to written interrogatories. And so why would you need a lawyer is 
you know, you're giving a statement that's going to be heavily scrutinized months, if not years after the fact in civil litigation. And, you know, again, people, I think, just wing it and like, oh, I didn't discriminate. I've got nothing to hide. And then fast forward a year later and they're getting cross-examined about a statement that they gave a year or two prior that they didn't give a lot of thought to. And that usually doesn't end well for, for that individual. Right. Only I would say only the federal government investigates itself. Um, so, um, Chris, real quick, if you can just um, comment on um, congressional hearings or you know, testimony, is it ever like the career civil servant, you know, oh, absolutely. that you see on C-SPAN? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> it, like? keep in mind that congressional investigations, um, you know, Congress does have very, very broad power to to investigate. Um, they, of course, have subpoena power as well, where they can subpoena testimony from individuals. And there's been a trend in recent years. Um, you know, years ago, it used to be, you know, Congress would go through the agencies, you know, Congressional Public Affairs shop. Now, Congress will a lot of times just contact individuals directly. You just get a letter yeah. that, hey, you, we need you to interview you. And not all interviews, well, in fact, majority most interviews aren't what you see on c-span of you know in the hearing room on tv at the table it's a private interview that's transcribed it's a team of uh, house you know or, or senate lawyers doing it you know very much akin to a deposition and you know again they, they, they can be very sprawling you know it's a political process so you know when when there's divided government there's a, you know, that's a great way for, you know, the party that does not possess the White House to score political points is to go do a bunch of investigations and dig up some dirt on, you know, how, you know, bad things yeah. that are happening in the executive. And so you see all levels, you see political appointees, you see SCS, and you see the rank and file, you know, you know, uh, federal employees who maybe worked on or touched or observed some event that now they're getting hauled over to Capitol Hill to, to, to testify about. The, the recent sort of example I, I point to was the impeachment proceedings of the first one, not Andrew Johnson's one, but the first one, you know, involving Ukraine, you know, whereas you had Ambassador Bill Taylor, um, you know, a Fez insured, you know, was covered, had legal representation. You had all these other foreign service officers, and I assure you, they did not really want that five minute of five yeah. minutes of fame, yeah. you know, and those that had liability insurance were able to get, you know, that's some place you do not want to walk in without your own lawyer. You know, they were able to get, you know, recent representation and others had to sort of scramble. One other uh, thing that to add, Tony, is going back where rank and file foreign service officers, if you go back to all the investigations about Benghazi, if you know, folks remember that from years yep. ago, it was rank and file FSOs that were, you know, getting, you know, because there were just so many investigations going on. But two, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, that under the current House, and again, this is a more recent trend where they um, they're not letting agency lawyers in the room. So it's you either again historically twenty years ago you could show up with the agency lawyer. Now it's you either you know in the last five ten years it's either a you get agency lawyer or private counsel, um, or you only get private counsel. And so you know again the value of having the insurance is having that counsel. Um, Cause again, if you have agency lawyer, they're not looking out for you. They're looking out for the agency. They're looking out the political head of the agency. So Chris, let me ask you um, in about a minute or so before we head to our final break to kind of just talk about the investigative process um, and lead up. And then uh, when we come back from the break, we'll talk about the disciplinary process before we get into some case examples. So if you can maybe just sort of, you know, set up how that flows between the, the allegations, the response, and really the importance of witness prep, right? Yeah. Document retention. I mean, you know, federal employees have a lot of rights and protections, and they're all informed of that coming in. And the, you know, the other side of that coin is there's a lot of allegations of misconduct and wrongdoing. And the government is required to look into those investigations or investigate those allegations. And so, an employee will generally get contacted by an investigator, you know, whether it's, you know, an administrative in-house management inquiry or it's one of the many we've discussed already. They'll be notified. They'll be asked to set up an interview. Um, and then, you know, really, I always tell clients, you know, the real value of having a lawyer in that process is all the time that we spend getting you ready for that interview. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like the first time, you know, the first time 
you know, you hear a question should not be when you're in there during that. The first time you're figuring out an answer should not be when you're in there under under the bright under the bright lights. That's yeah, right. or the first time you're, you know, oftentimes these events, you know, they'll deal with things that happened in the past, obviously. And sometimes it's things that happened two, three years ago. Mm-hmm. And if it's something you haven't thought about in two, three years ago, I promise the first time you describe it and explain what you did and why you did it, It'll be wrong. it's not going to be good. It takes practice to refresh your memory, go back and reread documents. And then, you know, obviously you're telling the truth, but packaging and presenting the truth and understanding your vulnerabilities so that you can then answer accordingly to mitigate those vulnerabilities and, and, and articulate to the investigator why you did what you did and more importantly like why it was not improper why it was not we're going to stop here for our final break when we return we'll continue our discussion with chris and connor and talk about some specific case examples you're listening to fed talk on federal news network Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show. Where does the time go? Um, so, Connor, let me um, let me bring it to you to talk about the disciplinary process. You know that federal employees, you know, as federal employees, they get due process. You know, I'm like I tell my employees all the time, they can be fired for good reason, bad reason, or no reason at all. It's not the same, you know, in the in the federal sector. So maybe you can just kind of like quickly walk us through you know, the process. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's not the same. And I, I've had a, a hard time explaining concept of due process to many a person, uh, you know, family, especially. So the, the disciplinary process starts with a proposal and it's called a proposal because it's not decided yet. And a proposal is a list of what the government thinks you did wrong. And typically it's accompanied by evidence that they think supports you know, their, their charges against you. And due process means notice and an opportunity to respond uh, before the action is taken. So opportunity to respond comes by statute in writing and orally. In practice, that means, you know, if we were representing a, an employee, we would prepare a written reply uh, with all the factual and legal defenses to the allegations. And then an oral reply, uh, which is an opportunity, uh, hopefully in person, but sometimes over the phone, to meet with the person who is in charge of deciding what will happen to you, deciding whether you keep your job, deciding whether you're going to be suspended or demoted. And when those two replies are in, then it's up to the deciding official at, at the agency to make a decision on whether or not they're going to sustain, meaning take the action against you, whether they're going to impose a lesser penalty or no penalty at all. And then uh, if, if the deciding official says, you know what, uh, I'm sticking with this for a variety of reasons, sometimes you know, political pressure, sometimes they think you they have a genuine belief that you engage in misconduct, federal employees have a right to post uh, action process as well. And that means an appeal to the Merit Systems Protection Program. And before you talk about that, let me just ask you, um, because I get this question all the time and I know how I answer it, that due process that you're talking about, you know, at the agency level, because as you point, it's just a proposal, it's not a decision, you get the evidence. Is it meaningful? You know, is it, you know, right? And I think it goes to a real question I'm asking you. It's supposed to be. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it is, or you would never win cases at that stage. You all win plenty of them at that stage. We do. You know, you know, or you get them mitigated. You get them, you've gotten some recently flat out reversed. You know, and and that there tells you that it is meaningful. Yeah, and and it it depends on the presentation, right? Mm-hmm. Because I do think that most deciding officials go in thinking they're going to sustain whatever their colleague has proposed. But if you're able to present your defense in a way that is you know, professional, compelling, uh, you know something that convinces them, the deciding official, not to take the action, that maybe you didn't do it, or that even if you did, that you still don't deserve to be fired, uh, you really can have some success at that early administrative stage. 
in, in, in getting the action reversed. And so what about MSPB appeals? Well, MSPB appeals are the backstop. If, right. uh, if you don't get meaningful review below or you have some other uh, defense to raise at MSPB, it is a, it's like a trial. And I think that's part of the reason, you know, for the meaningful due process, you call it a backstop is, you know, they don't want to be reversed there either. And, you know, I know the last time Chris and I were out talking about this stuff, you know, there's some published rate out there about how many times the MSPB, you know, rules in favor of the agencies, whether that's 60 or, or 70, it's higher, higher than higher. that. <laughs> but, but, but my point is, and the point of we're talking about professional liability insurance and the necessity of having qualified, you know, legal counsel and things like that is that you guys do much better than those. Oh, yeah. We're, those we're well statistics. above the well above the national average as you said it's real litigation yeah you know, it's a trial it's an evidentiary hearing uh you present witnesses and evidence in your defense mm -hmm. um which is a you know fundamental part you of the discovery beforehand right so before we jump into some case examples um chris let me bring it back to you and just um quickly talk about criminal allegations because it's something nobody you know ever really plans for but it can't sure. happen to federal officials yeah, I mean, that's what, you know, OIGs, you know, we mentioned earlier, they are criminal investigators. They do investigate alleged crimes. Uh, similarly, you know, sometimes, you know, the FBI, um, you know, they're obviously, you know, looking at, you know, public corruption and things of that nature. So uh, criminal investigations of federal employees happen routinely. And, and there are federal employees who get indicted and prosecuted for, for crimes. Right. Uh, you know, I'm not a criminal defense lawyer, but I certainly, you know, work hand in hand with some in town. And I know you have a team of, you know, mm -hmm. criminal defense law firms that are on your panel. But uh, yeah, I mean, some of the common cases you see, you know, I think there's run of the mill things like time and attendance fraud. Uh, there's Anti-Deficiency Act violations, you know, a lot of things with procurement. There's just general using your position for personal gain, whether trying to, you know, something as innocuous as oh i'm going to send my daughter's resume to one of my contractors next thing you know Conflict you're under investigation for using your position for well, personal there, gain there's a lot of crimes on, on title 18 and criminal code which intent is not a prerequisite to prove it so you can definitely trip yourself up there um you and know then once they're in you know it's like the classic once they're in and they're examining everything the ultimate fallback is uh, 18 USC 1001 false statement, right? Where you know they find uh, some paperwork or form that you filled out that you know that's all you know people you know so it's like once they're in you know it's a it's the, you, that's what you know you yeah. really need to put a lawyer up. Well, it's the microscope, it's a magnifying glass. None of us are perfect once they once they do that. Um, and the other sort of office like I just like to mention here is the Office of Public Integrity because they do believe you know it's their mission in life that if they do think they've got wrongdoing on part of federal officials is to prosecute to set an example to the to the rest of the, to the rest of the government. Um, Which, yeah, as a taxpayer, is great, but if you're <laughs> if you're that federal official, right, so much, <laughs> right. And so and so we have criminal counsel that practically is really there to, to get what's called a declination of prosecution to kind of try to push this to the administrative side of the house, like some of these examples that we were talking about and saying, you know, it can be it can be dealt with with there. So let me kind of try to utilize the a little bit of time that we have left guys and, and talk about some real world um, examples. Um, Karen, you want to talk about the, the SASers that you represented at, at VA recently? Absolutely. So, you know, VA SASers are under a, a lot of unique pressures. Um, there's increased congressional scrutiny. Uh, there are additional investigative forces within the VA that don't exist elsewhere, like the Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection. And so, you know, I've represented VA SESers um, for years. Uh, one that comes to mind is uh, an SESer who was the subject of a, a politically charged investigation, had the attention of media and Congress. Uh, and so, you know, no one likes reading about themselves in the paper and then getting hauled in to answer questions about it. Um, you know, the underlying allegations ended up not being true and we were able to help prepare this employee uh, for a proposed termination action. Um, we had a, our typical full-throated uh, and comprehensive you know, legal factual defense and yeah, it did a pretty, pretty damn good job, uh, but the action was still sustained. We got this very brief decision uh, that didn't really touch on any of our defenses. 
So this employee really had the only recourse was to go to the MSPB. And this was a few years ago before the, the recent uh, legislation changed SES rights. But you know, when we got to the uh, to the MSPB, the judge noticed that the, the VA hadn't really addressed any of our defenses and and basically told them you know, we're, she was going to rule against them. And so this, this employee ended up back at his job without any discipline at all. So it's just a really good sense of you know that record building that we're able to help people do below right, right. Um, how it can beat out even these extreme pressures um, right. to fire the employee. So maybe um, we can give some examples of special agents. We talked a little bit about, you know, or what we call 1811s. Um, yeah, we've had, you know, I think a wide array, um, you know, <laughs> of 1811 investigations, you know, misuse of, of the GOV, the government owned vehicle is a, you know, common allegation. Like I always say they got the three toys, right? They yeah. got the gun, the badge and, and, the, and the car, but it's really, it's really about, I always say it's about the badge. It's about the power, you know, and that power can't go unchecked. So you have a tremendous amount of power. You could deprive people, you know, their liberty and things like that. So what comes with that is scrutiny and accountability. Um, and they're under it more because, because they're, they're, you know, they're doing that. So a lot of them get, you know, get investigated, um, you know, for for everything associated with their job. You saw it in the wake of George Floyd. So we only have a few minutes left. I want to quickly just talk about two areas. I want to, first, I want you to mention um, federal prosecutors, um, you know, the, the United States attorneys. Um, then if we got time at Congress, we can talk about wildlife firefighters. Yeah, AUSAs, um, as I'm sure, you know, any prosecutor knows, you know, the, the criminal defense bar and, and criminal defendants, you know, they, they will pounce on any mistake that, that you make um, and it'll be subject to appeals and all kinds of litigation. And so, you know, when those allegations are raised by, by regulation, any allegation of attorney misconduct has to be re reported to the Department of Justice Office of Professional Responsibility. So things like Brady violations, um, you know, maybe uh, an improper statement in a closing argument, um, you know, an improper question of a criminal defendant on cross-exam. You know, there's a wide array that I've seen, you know, brand new novice prosecutors make, and I've also seen... Uh, you know, seasoned prosecutors make, and then all of a sudden, you know, the defendants, you know, make a lot of hay of it and welcome to an OPR investigation. So real quick, in 30 seconds or less, I got tell me about wildland firefighters. So decades ago, Congress passed a law saying that you had to investigate OIG, had to investigate uh, any uh, firefighting in which someone, there's a fatality. And so IG does it to this day. I mean, wildland firefighters have the most dangerous job out there, uh, in my opinion, and yet at, after they've suffered through something, typically when one of their colleagues has passed away, they're they're subjected to a really high intensity investigation by by IG, where they could have criminal or disciplinary right. liability. And it's all with 2020 hindsight. And and my favorite on the on the wildland fire stuff is OSHA comes in and runs a safety investigation on how to keep a burning forest a safe work environment. And that's all we spend. <laughs> so that's all the time we have for the show today. Thanks, Chris and Connor, for being here and sharing this important information with our listeners. Hope you all enjoyed it. Bed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm of Shaw, Branson, and Roth. Have a great weekend.